Well, hi, Michael. Uh, uh, this is uh, now two months after we had our last podcast on uh, Turkey and a very eventful, uh, eventful summer indeed where the refugee issue is coming back on the table when the tensions between the Americans and the Turks are higher again and uh, uh, where there is a balancing act with, uh, with, uh, with Russia and so on. But maybe you want to start with the domestic picture. Uh, the domestic picture in Turkey right now is extremely volatile uh, in, in various ways. Uh, I suggest that we come back to uh, Syria and Idlib and elsewhere later on, but domestically, uh, the government uh, of Mr. Erdogan as president, now running the government, did uh, face some losses in the uh, local elections, municipal elections earlier this year. And uh, uh, together with the economic crisis, uh, that was both part of the reason for, for the losses uh, faced by AKP. Uh, we have this economic crisis, <clears throat> which um, interacts with politics in various ways. The most recent development is that the government has uh, banned three Kurdish mayors in, in the biggest uh, Kurdish cities in the southeast, uh, Diyarbakir and Van uh, and others, and also decided to expelled from the party, the former prime minister, Davutoglu. This is a sign that uh, there are cracks within the AKP party and hence with the uh, rulership of the Erdogan-run new um, kind of setup of government. The problem uh, for the regime in Turkey is that if the two uh, new party um, formation processes proceed, the one um, uh, organized by Mr. Davotulu and or the other one by Mr. Babajan, the former um, deputy prime minister of the economy and the Tsar of the Turkish economy, as some call him. If they uh, proceed and are allowed to proceed into formation of uh, new uh, splinter parties within that bloc, it will uh, risk for the government to uh, lose the majority held in in the parliament. The parliament is much less powerful now uh, under the new system, but still in, in terms of legitimacy. And uh, the problem for the regime is that if it tries to face these uh, uh, tendencies of a crack within the government structure, uh, it will, uh, if it tries to deal with it uh, with the, with the, an open fist, hardball play, then it risks paying a price for it in terms of the economy. So you have uh, an economic crisis and a political uh, uh, uncertain situation at least. Uh, and uh, this is how things are in Turkey. And meanwhile, Turkey and the Turkish government is facing enormous problems in its foreign policy. So it's the, the foreign policy area, it is the economy, and it is the cohesiveness of the regime as such, which tends to 
act together. So, so what uh, does uh, what does the president need to do in order to increase his popularity? Well, that is his dilemma. Uh, he may increase his power by cracking down on various uh, trends that are uh, symptoms of uh, failing uh, uh, failing support for him. But popularity for popularity, he needs to be seen to be running things and to uh, deal uh, efficiently with the economy. And the economy is suffering and politics uh, are suffering further by the new crisis uh, of refugees. Because it has been obvious uh, in various ways that the situation for the um, 3.6 million Syrian refugees now resident inside Turkey as a result of uh, Erdogan's open-door policies on the past and the fact that Syria is a neighboring country. Uh, but people are uh, in the economic crisis now clearly uh, worried about um, jobs and things like that, you know, competition for the welfare uh, with this um, large, large group of, uh, of, uh, of uh, refugees. So, um, therefore, the government has uh, tried, in order to enhance its popularity, uh, to uh, both expel Syrians back into uh, Idlib area in, in, the, in Syria, which uh, under the law they should not be entitled to do, and they have refused uh, having done so, but there have been uh, witness about this happening but also to um, lift uh, Syrians that are not uh, properly documented uh, from inside uh, Istanbul, now run by the opposition, by the way, under the uh, local elections, to other uh, provinces in Turkey where they were first registered. So there is unsettlement over the refugee situation inside Turkey, and this has compelled Erdogan also to accelerate his, uh, his uh, urge to create a safe zone uh, inside Syria along the border and hopefully, uh, or he hopes, uh, that this will be done uh, in conjunction with, in cooperation with the USA. But the US is um, uh, keeping its, uh, its uh, loyalty to the SDF, the, the Kurdish-dominated forces there, and the area which Erdogan has in mind is a Kurdish-populated area. So the result of... Which part of the border are, are we talking, talking about now? We are now talking about the, uh, the northeastern border, uh, east of the Euphrates. Uh, the area where uh, you have a Kurdish population along the border line. So the question now between the US and, uh, and Turkey is what would be the depth of this corridor or this safe area where Erdogan plans to, um, to send uh, up to a million Syrians. And if he were to be allowed to do so uh, together with the US, or if he would do so unilaterally, taking the risk of big conflict with the US, it would change completely the demographic structure of that part of Syria. And also, of course, it is against the wishes of uh, the regime in Damascus. And they are having the support from Russia. So it's uh, all very complicated. But things are moving now on all these areas. And uh, the question of refugees, of course, has to spill over because uh, 
uh, Erdogan has now said that if the West, meaning Europe, will not be helpful in organizing such a safe area, then he may have to uh, open the gates for refugees to continue to Greece and onwards to Europe, which of course has created great worry in governments. Uh, governmental. Okay, so why don't you remind uh, uh, those who didn't follow our earlier podcast and also our earlier report on the Middle East about where you saw things going in the beginning of this year when we then go outside and look at yeah. the, the well, Syrian uh, situation. I would uh, still now talk about Syria because uh, when once the uh, Islamic State, uh, the main enemy uh, from the point of view of the West, was seen to have been, if not, uh, if not uh, beaten completely, uh, then at least reduced uh, drastically. Then, of course, that gave rise to uh, the coming back of all the other issues uh, that gave rise to the Syrian crisis. So in our earlier podcast and in our report, we talked about three areas of conflict now dominating the Syrian scene. Uh, from the point of view of, uh, of security and the conflict. And those three were this uh, northeastern border area, with, with, which we just now mentioned. It is Idlib, and let's come back to Idlib. And then it is also the fact that on Syrian soil, there is a, a low-level conflict boiling between Israeli uh, forces, uh, meaning air planes mainly, and pro-Iranian uh, units of various kinds. And the Iranians are cooperating with Hezbollah from Lebanon. And uh, Le in Lebanon, Hezbollah has uh, managed uh, to direct against Israel because they have been uh, equipped with lots of missiles that they can launch in an in a, in open conflict. So uh, it has been a big job for not least Russian diplomacy to try to make the parties to that particular conflict remain at such a low level, although fully military, that um, one will avoid a full-scale military conflict directly between Iran and Israel. Now Israel is facing, um, or the leader of Israel, Netanyahu, is facing elections uh, very shortly. So we have uh, three main events coming up now, which will stir a lot of, uh, of uh, unrest in, in this region. You have uh, the elections in, in Israel uh, and temptations, I, I would say, on the part of the leader of Israel to uh, take risks that he would not otherwise do in order to uh, foster the nationalist sentiments and uh, enhance his chances of winning, avoiding legal action. And then you have the, all the meetings that will take place uh, in the, in the uh, in environments of the UN, uh, and that will activate the UN uh, activities in the, in the region, difficult as they are. And then you have also a meeting at summit level of the Astana group of countries, meaning Turkey, Russia and Iran, coming up also in, in a little more than a week's time. So you have many uh, high level events taking place in order to deal with those three 
sub-conflicts taking place on, on, on uh, Syrian soil. So repeat once more, which are those three sub-conflicts? So you, have, you mentioned the Israeli-Iranian one. Then the, uh, the conflict between Turks and Kurds being a, a, a sub-conflict affecting the whole arrangement in the, nor- in the northeast, east of Euphrates. And in that, in that part of Syria, which is uh, some 30% of the, whole, of the whole territory of Syria, the U.S. and, and the coalition, uh, the anti-ISIS uh, coalition, has air superiority. But the U.S., of course, is uh, influenced by the decision taken in principle by the president, President Trump, to withdraw militarily from Syria which is not such an easy thing to do. And meanwhile, uh, there is negotiations that uh, the Americans are doing, both with the Kurds dominating some 30,000 troops that they have equipped and trained by the US in the fight against ISIS, but which Turkey sees as a threat to Turkey. And uh, therefore, Erdogan has been threatening for months, since uh, almost a year now, to have a full-scale military invasion into that part of, of, uh, of Syria, the northeast, in view of its uh, existential fear of there being established a Kurdish uh, statelet in that part, which would, ma- which would uh, make the struggle against PKK in Turkey uh, almost impossible. So that's one thing. And then you have this Israeli-Iranian thing, as he said, which is part of the broader U.S.-Iran conflict, which provides a... And then, thirdly, uh, you have the Idlib crisis, which is different different uh, from the two others in a way. But in, in, in very brief, Idlib was a province that uh, still remains the last rebel-controlled part of Syria, a remainder from the original conflict in, in Syria. And that's uh, the, the uh, usefulness of that province uh, earlier was that you could always negotiate with rebels in other parts, eastern Gotha and other places, uh, to be uh, for them, for, the, for militants and also civilians to be evacuated to Idlib. And then uh, leaving Idlib as the scene of the final battle in the, in the original conflict. Now you have, therefore, uh, some three million civilians there, and you have some 20, 30 or so uh, militants, rebels, more or less jihadists, still fighting it out there. And uh, then you have the different uh, conflicts uh, trying to deal with this. You have the U.S. interested uh, in, although the Russians have the air superiority in that part, so there are limits to what the U.S. can do, but the U.S. did attack a a, a jihadist stronghold only the other day. So there are exceptions to the rule of Russian air superiority. But the the fear of the Turks uh, is that uh, losing Idlib, you have lost all chances of finding a compromise solution to the political settlement of the Syria crisis. And you will have uh, allowed Assad with Russian help simply to to win the day. And uh, that interest is shared by the US. Uh, Prevent that by by holding out in Idlib, pending resolution to the, the bigger issues. 
so you have both political and military reasons. And then, of course, with the three million civilians inside Idlib, uh, where will they go fleeing from the fighting? Uh, and of course, there is only one direction that they could go now, which is Turkey. And Turkey is already uh, saying that it is suffering too much from the 3.6 million they already have. And of course, by extension, you have the uh, European fear that all this will, uh, will create an enormous new wave of, uh, of, or a crisis of, of refugees. So it's all these, these things that are somehow linked, but they unfortunately coexist with these other two crises that are also part of the overall Syrian scene. Can, can I uh, um, ask you in this context, um, when you talk about all these conflicts and so on, uh, there has been an increased focus in the media on the issue of Turkish military capabilities and the way they are using their relationship with, uh, with Russia to beef up uh, that uh, military capability uh, in a way which uh, is really challenging the Americans and NATO. And on the other hand, there is even now in the last days even expressions of, uh, of uh, uh, belief that, that uh, Turkey even might need to equip itself with uh, nuclear weapons. What is, what is it in all of this that, uh, that is, is really important and what is more, more of a sort of a skirmishes on the surface? Uh, if I were to pick on the, the last thing you mentioned, uh, nuclear weapons, that was something that, that uh, Erdogan, President Erdogan was uh, saying the other day, uh, it's not fair to have uh, some countries having nuclear weapons and, and we don't, why don't we also have nuclear weapons? If that now is so important for any country that seeks uh, strategic autonomy, uh, um, things like this. Um, the debate that has followed on this statement by Erdogan uh, has tried to tone down the uh, significance and the realism of it. But there are others that are saying that, uh, who knows, uh, now with the Russian assistance, uh, Turkey is creating nuclear energy, uh, a plant uh, on the southern coast, and there are such trends. Um, you and I have talked a lot about the, uh, the risk of uh, nuclear proliferation. I think that risk is real. In the case of Turkey, it's not, uh, not any time soon. And it is bound, uh, Turkey was one of the first adherents to the NPT treaty. So there is uh, a lot to uh, say. But by extension from the current trend of Turkey uh, and the Turkish regime feeling uh, somehow um, alienated by by NATO, by the US, uh, seeking uh, uh, greater importance as uh, in a more multipolar world, by the way, where you need, if you are 82 million and, uh, and are located strategically, then you need to uh, have a f more freedom of action strategically. That's uh, the, the kind of argument that is being run. Now, uh, Turkey has uh, had for some years now big problems with the US. And one aspect of this was uh, this um, acquisition of the S-400 um, missile uh, system, which is seen to be quite potent. 
Turkey is arguing that uh, they have tried to uh, convince the U.S. to deliver Patriot uh, missiles, but uh, the U.S. did not want that. Uh, the reason being that uh, Turkey has always asked for uh, technology transfer as part of such a deal. And the big question now is whether the Russians are more willing to that than the Americans have been so far. Nonetheless, uh, the U.S. did uh, explain to the Turkish side that if you go ahead and uh, acquire those, um, the, uh, this uh, S-400 system, then uh, we are going to have to punish you uh, for that. And the punishment has uh, been implemented already with the declaration by the U.S. that Turkey can no longer acquire S uh, F-35 jets for its uh, air force. Uh, although Turkey has been a partner to the uh, F-35 program for a long time and has spent a billion plus dollars uh, already in that process and its industry has been uh, planning for a big role in, in that development. So that is a big blow. Uh, the second kind of punishment that has been uh, more or less decided by Congress but has been upheld by President Trump in the US who is uh, so personally friendly with uh, Erdogan uh, to have sanctions uh, direct against Turkey uh, under the Katsa regime decided by, by Congress. And if that, once Congress uh, reconvenes after the vacation recess, uh, and if they uh, force the president to carry on with these uh, sanctions, then it will definitely hurt the Turkish economy considerably. And the failing Turkish economy is in the interest of no one uh, not uh, certainly not the European states because they are somehow parties to or partners with the Turkish economy in various ways. So all this is very complicated. But for the regime uh, to acquire these weapons, to talk about at least uh, finding replacement for the F-35 uh, with the Russian Su-35 or even 57, which is a next generation plane from Russia. Then, of course, it is seen by many as Turkey drifting from the, from the West, from NATO. If I may interject there, I mean, it seems to be a rather fundamental issue that, that if you don't have F-35, you can also not actually use the B-61 uh, nuclear gravity bombs that, uh, that might be deployed in, in, in Turkey if there is a modernization. Because without F-35, I don't know what kind of uh, what kind of planes they could use to plan for nuclear deployment. The situation with the B-61 is that uh, the current fleet of F-16s are not equipped to to carry those bombs, and if they don't have the second next uh, fleet, uh, which is F-35, then I think the question is completely open. Uh, as to what is going to happen in, in the next stage with, uh, with the nuclear sharing. But that is one of several big, big issues to be dealt with in the, in the NATO context. Right. No, it's, it's clearly something that, uh, that sort of challenges your mind. How, what are we talking about here now? We have a, a very important NATO member, which is, has an integrated part, uh, integrated role in NATO strategy, which is now uh, more or less excluding itself 
in terms of interoperability from NATO coordination. It's, a, it's a really a, a strategic problem. Absolutely. And then if you add uh, Russia, Black Sea, Bosporus, Eastern uh, Mediterranean, uh, gas exploration, passage, um, connections, uh, Russian build-up in the Crimea peninsula up there, uh, there are many issues which I think are going to be hugely important. And there also, if uh, if Turkey uh, somehow uh, gets uh, uh, isolated, let's say, over Cyprus, and if the US, which has been talked about, uh, instead supplies Greece with F-35, but not Turkey, and if uh, uh, you have constant skirmishing in the Aegean Sea, and you have a Russian interest in, in power projection, but there are hindrances under the Montreal Declaration from 1936 for NATO to operate in the Black Sea, because there are restrictions as to how many and how, how long time you can be there uh, navally. So there are a lot of things which I think bothers anyone, everyone that are thinking long term of implications of problems between the West and Turkey. Uh, under the current regime. So one can only guess that uh, you and I and others are going to talk about this for years to come in very yeah. problematic terms. Yeah. Now I was but, just looking at some uh, demographic statistics, I mean for people to uh, to ponder the, the fact that we're now talking about a country with more than 80 million inhabitants in the, one of the most strategically important parts of of the world, actually, and uh, and uh, and, and uh, we are talking often about these issues as it is as if it was something which is very far away and, and cannot necessarily uh, in, in influence uh, our situation in Europe. But there are so many links to this. Uh, not to also not to to speak about the EU issue. Uh, where, of course, uh, developments are taking place over the summer. We've had the enlargement package coming in the beginning of the summer, and we then have new U European institutions coming into place during the autumn, which will have again to face the question, what kind of language to use vis-à-vis -vis Turkey? Mm. You have also uh, the, the various kinds of links to the geostrategic picture we mentioned before. I have in mind now um, the fact that Denmark of all countries, although Denmark has a record of being more active than most other countries, small countries, to uh, be loyal to the US in, in operations, uh, Iraq before, and now the other day Denmark uh, declared willingness to, uh, to uh, send military personnel to the, again, the northeast of Syria, uh, and uh, upon requests uh, or more than requests, uh, demand from from the U.S. to share burdens so that uh, the the Trump decision to withdraw from Syria can be facilitated by others stepping in. So Denmark now, uh, first Nordic country responding to this, um, maybe others will follow, will, will see. But you have all, all these questions about, uh, uh, about the EU and European countries for whom 
both the Middle East and also North Africa is the near abroad, which is uh, open territory, which is uh, a part of the world. Uh, Europe has many other global interests also, we know, but in this particular area, it's like what you and I talked about before, about the uh, Western Balkans being the the uh, home yard, backyard of, of Europe, where there must be an active stabilizing role for Europe, because without it, it will be very, very difficult and will be to the detriment of very basic uh, European interests. So uh, you can discuss uh, the whole MENA area, Middle East and North Africa, as a kind of extension of how we perceived the Balkans before, or maybe still, but maybe still, by the way. And in this, in this uh, larger area, the near abroad of Europe, you have lots of bilateral interest, but uh, you have also a fundamental EU collective interest, especially in a, in a, in a Brexit perspective also, when, when the, uh, the interests of the, of the UK will be more difficult to take into account. And in all, in all this, of course, uh, it's the Middle East now, which is explosively compli complicated and, and uh, warlike uh, in many ways. But you have uh, much broader issues of what can the EU, what must the EU do in order. We have the refugees, that's just one thing, but you have so many other issues. In Libya, for example, you have so many issues which are very, very difficult to accommodate. But and, and the EU side and the in Europe, of course, you have the terror export problems and you have the refugee problem and which are, are so difficult to reconcile with the basic values of the European Union. Yes, and I, we will come back to this in later uh, podcasts, but I'm, I'm uh, struck by, of course, uh, starting now to read uh, General Mattis, uh, Secretary Mattis' uh, memoirs, uh, which very much were related to Syria um, and Afghanistan, of course. Um, I'm struck by the, the uh, um, superficial debate that we have on some terms here. We are talking about uh, strategic autonomy in Europe uh, when, we, when, we, when we are looking to the, to the neighborhood. Uh, and here we are talking about an, uh, a distance from the Canary Islands to Turkey, which is uh, 10,000 kilometers. Uh, uh, we are talking about areas uh, in depth, which are also uh, close to 10,000 kilometers. I mean, if you go all the way down to, to Mali and, uh, and uh, Nigeria, which is going to be the 400 million people, uh, fourth largest country in the world, in, in 20 or 30 years. I mean, uh, it, having defense in depth there in terms of managing the, the migration flows and so on, it's a huge con... So if we are talking about resources, uh, deployment of resources to deal with these issues, we are talking about something absolutely enormous, uh, which we thought that the Americans would deal with, so to say. and. And, and then we hear, we hear that uh, uh, there is a Secretary of, of Defense in the United States who leaves his post, uh, uh, you know, uh, noting that his uh, boss is not willing to, to take this responsibility, but is want to give it away to someone else, who, to whom <laughs> is that? going to be given away? That's, that's a really a, the question.
because uh, the Russians are also stretched, of course. They are not going to take responsibility for peace. Even if you, what you say is that, that they have done uh, uh, important diplomatic work uh, between Iran and, and Israel and so on, uh, still it's also going to be over... Uh, they are not going to be able to create peace or stabilize peace in this area alone either. It's a question both of uh, resources to do so, uh, but it's also and mainly, I would say, the fact that uh, very few players other than the big institutions and small countries like Sweden and others uh, really depend on functioning multilateral institutions providing the legitimacy framework for international peace work. Russia in, in Syria, for example, they are, uh, they are indispensable and have, have become indispensable in many ways. Everyone wants to go to Sochi and talk to Putin, uh, whether it be Netanyahu or... But that be, that's because uh, Russia, acting in its own self-interest, uh, is seeking to maximize influence and, and relevance. Uh, it has nothing to do with uh, altruistic uh, peace work. So one has to be realistic about that also, assessing that, for example, I mean, Russia uh, doesn't have identical interests, uh, identical with those of Turkey, but uh, Russia is very interested, of course, in dragging Turkey away from NATO, um, not too fast in order to create problems. Uh, Putin is interested in having... Uh, uh, Assad in Damascus prevail in Syria because he has invested in that so much, but not too too fast in order to cause too many problems for Turkey because that could harm uh, the long-term balance. So I mean, it's it's all self-interest, but it's incredible to consider when uh, the Astana heads of uh, state, uh, Putin, uh, Rouhani, and Erdogan again meet and then trying to uh, reconcile their differences, which is enormous. Uh, but they have only one interest, which is uh, to use the influence that they have and the presence that they have in Syria to something which uh, will lead to uh, ceasefire and the peace. But the peace, the, the kind of peace that uh, Putin wants and that uh, Rouhani wants and that Erdogan, they are... So complete. it's more like a managing conflict than... than, than uh actually peace and on top of if that was not enough i mean i'm also considering the uh pleas from civil society now to stay away with security interventions from from this entire region mena region uh and rather use uh, development uh, assistance humanitarian assistance etc to in order to to try to to realize the uh, SDGs, uh, the the uh, the general development goals of the United Nations. The problem being, of course, that whenever uh, uh, the German Chancellor Merkel, for instance, goes to a country like Niger, they don't meet a democratic system. They meet uh, a system where where everyone uh, in power is going to try to to benefit. Uh, on different levels from this assistance and uh, the question is how much of it will remain for the people who are really the destinataire of this of this assistance the people who are out in the des desert without even a tent in many cases so it's a, it's a, it's a difficult situation
Yes, and uh, one has to keep respecting the UN and the principles uh, guiding it and the, the enormous humanitarian challenges and the developmental needs in a globalized but problematic world as we have it now. But when the situation has become as complicated and as bellicose as things have now become compared to, let's say, 20 years ago, I, I, I was dealing with the Sudan for a while in my career and uh, um, I have been saying now that it's amazing to think about Darfur in the Sudan. Everyone, uh, 20 years ago, everyone talked about Darfur. Uh, today, no one talks about Darfur, uh, although the situation there, in spite of the political changes that have finally happened in Sudan, but no one, uh, no one really, the, the media and others don't have the energy to, to focus on Darfur, although the situation in Darfur is as bad as it was at that time. So you have, uh, there's a shift of emphasis and the securitization of concepts. Uh, it is still uh, valid to say one needs to look at development and all those things, but you cannot do this instead of finding the, the, the military diplomatic uh, solutions, uh, which you can only negotiate in a sort of hard way, the way things are now. Yeah. So we are looking forward now to a, a, a challenging year in the in the Europe in, in in the European Union, of course, with new leadership, and there are going to be new strategies or updated strategies, and and uh, it will be interesting to see how how this uh, the, the this challenge will be met. That on the one hand, you need to to satisfy certain political imperatives uh, from a domestic political point of view in many European countries of, to fight populism, to show uh, uh, decisiveness when it comes to the challenges uh, uh, and at the same time uh, uh, be credible in your approach to these, uh, these areas. Uh, and uh, I, I really... I, uh, think that this is something that we need to focus on also from Sweden and we are doing it of course together now in the Swedish Royal Academy of War Sciences where you chair the security policy section I help you with that uh, uh, in a project with uh, with a focus on the European dimension of Swedish security policy and more specifically now on the southern dimension. So we will come back on that uh, with more podcasts, unless you want to add something more at the end of this one. Not other than to say that we are looking at the southern dimension as we have defined it now, and this is a, a dimension of the European dimension of Swedish politics, so it's a sort of two-tire thing. And yes, this autumn is going to be extremely eventful, and we have to learn understand that uh, conflicts and problems like this are uh, near-term happening here and now, unfortunately, not in the distant future. Yeah. And let's, uh, let's wish our British friends that they stay engaged on this together with us. And that's very important yes. from a Swedish perspective, indeed. Yeah. So, please, please subscribe to these podcasts if you, if you like them, find them interesting. And, uh, and uh, see you soon.